Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. Lord Jesus, please hear our prayers. Would you draw near, Holy Spirit, would you fill us full? That we might listen well, that we might learn well, that we might have ears to hear, just as Jeremy prayed earlier. Uh, We do not want to be merely hearers only of your word. We want to be doers. So for the next few minutes together, may we experience your grace through your word in a transforming way. Maybe there's new truth to be learned, but oftentimes what we really need is for you to make the new truth seem, excuse me, to make the old truth seem new, seem fresh, uh, seem powerful in our lives personally. We pray that you'd be doing this today. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 43. I bet most of us at some point in our lives have either said the phrase or heard the phrase, well, you're supposed to forgive and forget. And a lot of times I've heard this in modern day vernacular. Maybe I've even said it myself. I can forgive, but I can't forget. And a lot of us are like, I think the Bible does say something about forgiving and forgetting. But I even put in the sermon title a question mark. Because it's like, does God really forget our sins? Look at Isaiah chapter 43. Look at verse 25. This is God speaking. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Now, What is that really saying? The word remember is used often in the Old Testament attributed to God. And we have to understand how it's meant when it's used because God's omniscient. He knows all things. He doesn't forget anything. He knows the past, the present, the future. Think about the story of Noah and the ark when God decided he was going to wipe out humanity, start again with Noah and his family. It uses the language that God made a covenant with Noah. And he puts Noah and his family on the ark. Lots of rains come, many days pass, and then it says, and God remembered Noah. God remembered the covenant. Now, that's not saying that God was sitting in the heavens like, oh my, I forgot. And all this wrath and destruction, I forgot. I kept a couple people alive on the boat. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is when it talks about God remembering his covenant, remembering his people, it means God is about to act in light of the promises he's made. And so when it says, when God says, I will remember your sins no more, It doesn't literally mean that he's forgotten. But what it does mean is, I am not going to treat you as your sins deserve. We know that. We even quoted some verses in some of our confessions. But sometimes when we're really struggling with guilt, when we're really struggling with shame, when our conscience maybe feels overbearing, we can doubt that. I have a friend. uh, We were similar age and stage going through college. We did a lot of different ministry things together. He almost actually worked for a ministry after he graduated. He didn't. He was a part of a PCA church. He was an officer for a while. He got into a lot of big, bad, hidden sin. But he actually, he he repented. He confessed. uh, And as myself and some other people were trying to meet with him and help him be restored, somebody talked to him about the story of the prodigal son. And he said, you know, I know that story well. I think about it a lot myself. He said, but here's the problem. And this guy knew the scriptures very well. He could quote a lot of verses. 
He said, when I imagine myself being the prodigal son, coming back to the father, the thought that goes through my mind is this. We'll see. We'll see. Will the father really jump off the porch for me and run to me and hug me and forgive me? And sometimes as Christians, we can feel that way. Now, I want us to look at this story of David. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Turn there. And we're really picking up in the middle of a story. One of the worst times of David's life, which we're not going to read the whole story. But David was a king. And in the times when kings go off to war, David stayed home. He takes a walk on the roof of his palace. He sees a beautiful woman next door. He sends for her. He knows that it's the wife of one of his mighty men. But he takes her. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. He tries to cover it up. Brings her husband home. Gets him drunk. But the husband is a loyal, faithful guy. Won't go back to his house. Sleeps at the guard's uh, tent or shack outside the palace. So David decides to have the man put to death. Writes a letter. Sends it back with Uriah. Into battle. Joab the commander. Puts him in a place where he's sure to die. And then David is silent about his sin. He takes Bathsheba. He marries her. But he just moves on. And we don't know for how long, but we know for at least nine months, David was hard-hearted in his sin. Covered it up. He thought he'd gotten away with it. I stole a woman. I took her. Committed adultery. But it was also a terrible abuse of power. I had her husband murdered. I've covered it up. I've survived. And yet God knew. And God loved David so much, God sent Nathan the prophet after David. This is a side note, but it's important. If you feel stuck in any sin in your life, one of the things you can pray, one of the things I pray for myself sometimes, Lord, put a Nathan in my life. (laughs) Having friends like Nathan is not fun. They're probably not going to be your best friend you want to hang out with on Friday night and eat Mexican with. But they're the friends that are there through thick and thin that when you're in a dark place will come after you aggressively in love. Pray that God will put Nathans into your life. Nathan comes to him. Nathan rebukes him. David confesses. And that's where we're going to pick up. Okay? Because we're, we're really talking about after you've sinned, how should you respond? And how does the Lord respond to our sin and our repentance? So our first point today is repenting. And let's pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 12, really after Nathan's rebuke, and let's look at David's response. Start in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now I want us to just stop here. Because a lot of times when we sin, especially when we've done some big bad sin, something scandalous, We tend to think, I'm going to have to put in a lot of emotional penance to pay the price for this one. You ever felt that way? I know I don't have to go sacrifice a goat or something like that, but I better cry a lot. I better feel terrible about myself. Maybe I should walk around with a facial expression that conveys sackcloth and ashes to anybody that meets me. When you read this passage in the Hebrew, you almost can't do it in English. David, David's confession is really only about two words. It's like he says, sin against God. There's no long explanation. He just confesses. And Nathan, and remember, in the Old Testament, the prophet was essentially the mouthpiece of God. 
If a prophet was speaking to you, God was speaking to you. And God says, you're not going to die. I've taken the sin away. It was instantaneous. How rich is God's mercy? It's so free. It's so good. He just wants our humility. He just wants our honesty. One commentator named Davis said this, we still assume that the intensity of our repentance contributes to the atonement. You ever feel that way? God cleanses sin's defilement, but may continue its discipline. And that's what we're about to see play out. So let's keep going. Verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and he washed and he anointed himself and he changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house and he asked And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabah of the Ammonites and took the royal city and Joab sent messengers to David and said I have fought against Rabah moreover I have taken the city of waters now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it lest I take the city and it be called by my name so David gathered all the people together and went to Rabah and fought against it and took it now here's part of what I want us to understand that can be so hard God, in His rich mercy and kindness, can fully forgive our sin and yet say, because of your sin, there will be discipline. There will be consequences. There will be chastisement that will still be painful. Now, sometimes there are truths that if we're trying to write a term paper on it, it's a little confusing how exactly we articulate this. But there are metaphors in life that we totally understand. I remember when my boys were younger, one of them did something pretty stupid. I have a lot of stories like this because they did a lot of stupid stuff, just like most teenage boys. And uh, confronted the son. He, he repented. He took ownership. He's very humble about it. And we said, buddy, we forgive you. We're not angry. But we are going to bring discipline to bear in your life. We're taking away your PlayStation 4. We had tried to figure out what would hurt him the most. And that was it. Like, we're not angry anymore. It's over. You're forgiven. But there's going to be consequences. Now, why would a parent do something like that? And you don't have to think long to understand, right? 
Because I understand from pain in my own life, sometimes the best training process is to bring some short-term pain into somebody's life to prevent them from long-term harm. And so when you really love somebody, you're willing to discipline them even though you forgive them. And if that's true of sinful parents like me and you, it's certainly true of Father God. Keep your finger here in 2 Samuel, but flip over to Proverbs chapter 19 for just a second. Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs chapter 19 and skip down to verse 18. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. A man of great wrath will pay the penalty and if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. You see the logic there? When your children are little, if you really love them, discipline them. Because you're teaching them, hey, you can't get away with that kind of stuff in life, buddy. You're training them so they can have a happier, more fruitful life. And God does the same things with us out of his love. Now, you may be listening say, okay, Olin, you took your boy's PS4 away for two or three days. God killed David's baby. There was later a civil war because of all this. That seems too severe. And I'll be honest, I wrestle with the same thought. But you know what that exposes about my heart and yours, if you think that way? We don't hate sin enough. And we don't love God enough. We ought to have such a high and holy and lofty view of our King in heaven. And such a hatred for our rebellion that it's like, Father... I trust you. Whatever discipline you bring to bear, I will submit. A great commentator named Derek Kidner said this, Sin always destroys intimacy. Suffering can deepen it. Think about that. Sin always ruins intimacy. Certainly between myself and God, at least experientially in the moment, right? But when God brings suffering to bear, sometimes suffering actually increases our intimacy with God. Does it not? In the hardship, we're driven more to Him. So if God decides to bring suffering into our life because of our sin, I'm not saying we should be happy, but we should trust Him. We should be willing to suffer in that way. Now, here's an important question. How do you know when you've really repented of the sin? And I'd say it's this way. There's weeping and there's worship. Now, when I say weeping, I don't literally mean you have to cry. Some of that's probably based on your upbringing and your personality. But I mean, there's grief over the sin. You don't like what you did. There's a distaste for it. But it's not all only that. Right? The world can have worldly sorrow that leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. And it's, it's, it, it has a theme of worship in it. There's a sweetness even in the repentance. And Tim Keller says that's the real acid test of true repentance is even in the midst of your repentance, you can still worship. I still love you, God. In fact, why I'm sad about my sin is not just that I got caught. It's not just the consequences. It's because I love you and I hate that I grieved your heart. Listen, again, some of this is based on personality. Some of this is based on your upbringing. But if you tend to be the kind of person that weeps a lot and you're hard on yourself, I can't believe I did that. I'm so stupid. I'm such an idiot. It's so bad. But you can't worship. That's not good. You're going to be depressed. And you'll probably be a legalist. You'll be pharisaical. 
But on the other hand, if you're kind of happy-go-lucky and you love to play the sovereignty of God, uh, sovereignty of God card, yeah, I did something big bad, but you know God's sovereign. He'll work it out. He always does. Not that bad. And you're a little too cheery after your sin. It's not good either. Because you'll be a licentious person that becomes a grace abuser. There needs to be this healthy balance. Almost a healthy tension. I hate what I did. I'm grieved over what I did. And yet, I love my God who shows me mercy in the midst of it. Okay. Now, why did I read that whole long passage about what happened to David after his repentance? Because I wanted you to see this. When David experienced a terrible consequence, I mean, God killed one of his children. What did he do when the consequence was over? He got up and he went right back to normal life. He took a bath. He got something to eat. He comforted his wife. He slept with her again. They had another child. He went back into battle. Part of the way that you know that you've really received God's mercy is you just go back to normal life. Why was David a man after God's own heart? Because he understood the heart of God. That God will chide us. God will discipline us. But God loves us. I had a friend in college. And he was serious about his faith. He was growing. But he would definitely have more of the personality that was way too hard on himself. And part of the way I knew. Like if he had gone out on a Friday night and done some sinful stuff. He didn't have to confess to anybody. Because he just didn't get out of bed all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Like somebody finally Monday would have to be like, dude, you got to get up and go to class. You're going to flunk out. I just feel so terrible about what I did Friday night. He had the weeping. He didn't have the worship. Does that make sense? Hey, it's not good. That's not an understanding of the mercy, the richness of God. Now again, but how, how did David know? How could he so quickly receive God's mercy, receive the consequence, and then move on? Where did that rejoicing come from? Let's go to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, which most commentators would agree was written by David after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to read the whole thing. Psalm 32, let's start in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. So I'm being honest with God. I'm not trying to cover it up. I'm not trying to hide. I'm putting all my cards on the table, so to speak, with God. And look at the way David talks about his sin. He calls it transgression, sin, iniquity. Three different words. Transgression is really breaking God's law. Sin is missing the mark. Iniquity is perversity, something twisted. And David's like, I did all of that. But he's saying, you took my sin away. You lifted it up. You've taken it away. But you've also covered me. Because, guys, we know this. Even when you're forgiven, it's like sin leaves some scars, does it not? So, in a sense, God says, I'm going to take the sin off of you, but I'm also going to cover you. Even the scars are going to be covered. That's how rich His mercy is. Keep going. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Guys, when we try to lie to others, to God, to ourselves about our sin, sometimes it will have physical, emotional, psychological consequences. 
a heavy weight, a heavy burden. When we try to cover up our own sin and our own effort. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden. They tried to lie to God. They tried to lie to themselves. They tried to hide. They tried to run. They tried to make excuses. Think about how we do that today. What does it look like in your life if you want to hide from God? How do you do that? (laughs) Or lie to God. You know God knows everything. I know what I do in my life is I just get really busy. Not going to slow down. Not going to take time to really meditate on the scripture to journal. If I get in the car, I'm turning on the radio or I'm calling somebody. Because if I get too silent, I feel like the Holy Spirit might come close and tap me on the shoulder. Not literally, right? But in my conscience, hey, there's something you need to do about that situation. Again, it betrays something sinful and stupid and immature in my heart. Because if I really believe everything I say about God, I should want the Holy Spirit to come close, right? At all times and always, even if it's to convict me. Because His conviction is never to hurt me in the long run. It's to save me. It's to sanctify me. It's to grow me up. It's to help me. It's to benefit me, not to burden me. Don't keep silent about your sin. Another commentator said this, Happy are those who aren't righteous, but they know what to do about it. We're not righteous in and of ourselves. But as Christians, we're supposed to know about what we can do with our lack of righteousness. We take it to God. And there ought to be overwhelming joy in our hearts when we confess our sins to God. Skip down to verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy All you upright in heart. I mean, just think about David for nine months, lying, trying to pretend like everything's fine, nothing to see here. (laughs) Just big coincidence, you know. Uriah went down to battle, got killed. I decided to marry his wife the next day. Got pregnant on the honeymoon. Everything's fine. Think about trying to carry the weight of that lie, the misery, the conviction. Almost certainly as the king of God's people, he still had to go to tabernacle and even be a leader in worship. And the weight when he finally confessed and he's free and he experiences forgiveness, he wants to sing and shout and dance. You know, we're Presbyterians, we don't tend to dance in worship. We know there's that story in the Old Testament where David danced with the ark and we're like, yeah, let's just skip that one. We don't really know what to do that as Presbyterians. But when you try to put yourself in this experience, you're like, that might make me want to dance. That kind of mercy, that kind of grace. I may not be able to dance, but I'll try. I mean, guys, last week we looked at Joseph's brothers and they were an example of how not to receive forgiveness. Right? I mean, Joseph had done so much to lavish mercy on them and grace, but they were still suspect in their heart. Is it real? Are you going to kill us after daddy's dead? David is the example of how to receive forgiveness. Confess your sin, and if God brings consequences, take the lumps. And then go back to worshiping. And go back to normal life. You don't have to pay penance. Because the price has already been paid for God's people in full. Tim Keller. He removes our subjective shame so we don't remain in inner angst. Have you experienced that? Has the inner angst been gone? One of the things I say to myself and sometimes I'll say to college guys I'm discipling that have grown up in the church, 
I mean, so much of ministry in the Southeast is you're talking to people who know all the answers, but they don't really know all the answers. You understand what I mean? And so they'll be talking about some sin. They're like, well, I know Jesus died on the cross for me, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's like they're bored with it. And I'll bring up 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And a lot of times they can cut me off and start quoting the verse before I even finish, right? They memorized that one in high school. And I'll say, okay, so do you know that you're forgiven? Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I'll ask, do you feel cleansed? It's amazing how people are like, no, I don't feel cleansed. I have some intellectual understanding of forgiveness. But something has happened with the experience. Flip over to Psalm 51 quickly. We won't read the whole thing. Psalm 51. Also written after this same sin. Psalm 51 and look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Right? Don't ever come to God and say, God, please forgive me because I promise I'll never do it again. I mean, that's good to promise you'll never do it again. You just probably aren't going to keep the promise. And even if you do keep the promise, that's not what's going to make him forgive you. Lord, forgive me because you're a forgiving God. Have mercy on me just because you like mercy. Show me grace because you promised to show me grace, not because I deserve it. Here's a thought I have often had, guys. If I was God, I would have never saved me. Because I have been a massive grace abuser since I got saved. And God knows all things. So if I was God looking down the corridor of time at me, I'd have been like, don't save that dude. And I guess I would talk that way if I was God, right? Because he's not going to appreciate it. Let's just go ahead and give him a lightning bolt. Be done with him. I mean, I wish I had better words to describe the richness, the generosity of his mercy. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David prayed and the record got wiped clean. Now, still, what I'm really trying to drill down deep for us this morning, how was it that David was able to do such a good job of receiving the Lord's forgiveness and rejoicing and really believing God is not treating me as my sins deserve? And go to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Verse 1, Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Derek Kidner said he's rousing himself to shake off apathy and gloom, using his mind and memory to kindle his emotions. Here's a quote by Tim Keller. It's one of my favorite Keller quotes of all time. He said, we are not helpless before our emotions. Meditation is a very assertive way of bringing the truth to our hearts and emotions, sometimes almost pummeling them into submission. You know what he's saying there? And listen. There are great things about the current generation, 
and there are bad things about the modern generation. And one of the bad things about our modern generation is we think we're controlled by our emotions. Well, this is how I feel, so this is just who I am. Deal with it. You know, that's bad enough in human relationships. But with God, that's really terrible. I'm just in a bad mood today, God. I don't want to worship. When my children were little, there were many a Sunday where they would wake up on Sunday morning. And I think, I think they almost felt like I had a plan on Saturday night. One of them would come to me and say, Dad, you know, I slept really bad last night. I don't feel good. I think I got a little tickle in my throat. I just really, I don't feel like going to church today. And every once in a while I'd say, me either, buddy. And their eyes would kind of brighten. It was like they had hope. I said, yeah, I, I, I didn't sleep good either. I, my throat, they're like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like going to church either. And they're like, all right, so you mean we're going to skip? I'm like, oh, no, we're going. Like, what do you mean? You said you didn't want to go. I was like, I don't want to go. We're still going. And here's what, and listen, I wasn't making that up, right? I wasn't just trying to identify with them. I really didn't want to go. Now, here's the difference, just because I'm a little bit older and got a couple more years of experience on them. I'd get to church. This ever happened for you? In a bad mood, you don't want to be there, you're tired, your mind is scattered, whatever, and you start singing. And the first song, it does kind of sound like blah, 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 blah. Even if it's your favorite song. But at some point, by song two or three, your heart starts to get engaged. You start to worship. Your emotions get kindled for the Lord. And guys, we can do this every day with the Word. With your favorite playlist of worship songs on your iPhone if it has to be, okay? But learn to fight this battle to say, I am going to speak to my own soul and say, worship God. Bless God. Hope in God. Stir yourselves up to worship God. It won't come naturally. Sometimes it will, not always. And part of Christian maturity is being willing to do the extra work Sometimes to beat my emotions into submission and say, worship God, like God, enjoy God. Now here's the problem. We think that that sounds like something out of a bad movie, like Chevy Chase taking his kids on vacation and like, we're going to have fun whether you want to or not. And, and why? Because maybe we don't want to go on Chevy Chase's vacation. But when we're telling our soul, you're going to worship God. You're going to enjoy God. God's always enjoyable. So it's our soul that is out of alignment when we're not enjoying Him. It's never God. Okay. Charles Spurgeon said, Our Lord does nothing by halves. He's going to give us everything we need to worship Him. Everything we need to enjoy Him. Tim Keller said, God imparts an experience of his love to us in a way that makes us feel honored and built up. Are you experiencing that? Skip down to verse 9. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Guys, God brings discipline, but it's not repayment. It's different. And we've got to understand that. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love to those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. God's action about our sin, it's final. It's decisive. 
Spurgeon said it this way, if sin be removed so far, then we may be sure that the scent, the trace, the very memory of it must be entirely gone. So how was David able to really fully receive God's mercy and rejoice and go back to normal life? He wrote half the book of Psalms, guys. He was an expert in prayer and meditation and worship. He was an expert in dealing with his own soul. Not because he just came out of the womb with a PhD in soul work. Because he put in the time, he put in the energy to read, to study, to meditate, to preach truth to himself, to stir up his soul, to worship God. Now, Joseph's brothers, we looked at last week, they couldn't really receive Joseph's mercy fully. David did. Because David understood what I have done at the human level, it's evil, it's wicked. And I'm going to suffer for it. And some of the way he suffered for it the rest of his life, some of the consequences. Guys, sin is never worth it. The consequences always outweigh whatever short-term, artificial, counterfeit, fake pleasure you may get in the moment. But even through all the suffering that David went through the rest of his life, there was joy, there was happiness. Because it was kind of like David's choice to sin was like the lower court's decision that said guilty, condemned. But God's the Supreme Court and he says, I override that decision. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. You're still in. You're still my boy. You're still the one I've chosen I want to use. Flip to Matthew chapter 1. And we'll be done with this. Matthew chapter 1. Some of you probably know where I'm going. Some of you may not. Matthew chapter 1 is where we get this genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to read the whole thing for many reasons. One, I can't pronounce all the names. But there's just one point I want us to see. Matthew chapter 1, starting verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. How did David's bloodshed get forgiven? Because you know, the Old Testament, there was no sacrifice for adultery. There was no sacrifice for murder. You're supposed to be stoned to death. So when Nathan, the prophet, when God said, the Lord's taking your sin away, where did he take it? He took it to the cross. He took it to the Lord Jesus Christ. The son, Solomon, that came out of David's act of bloodshed led many generations later to the son of God whose blood was shed to cover David's bloodshed. And to cover all the sins of all of his people for all of eternity, including mine, including yours. Now, our sin, guys, has been drowned in the blood of Christ. And covenantally, it is forgotten. It is no more. And so even when God might discipline us for our sins, he does it as a loving father who's not angry at us anymore. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Lord Jesus, we do praise you. 
You are the worthy one. You are the righteous one. You are the holy one. You are the crucified, dead, buried, and risen one. And we rejoice in so great a salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.